0: This is Lunch VC, presented by Bullpen Capital. Each week, host Randy Comisar and I, Paul Martino, go deep into the nuts and bolts of all aspects of the venture capital business. And no, we don't ice the kicker, but we do give you a no bull look into the VC business. We talk with exceptional VCs about all sorts of topics, including deal sourcing, deal selection, selection of your fund size, just to name a few. Welcome back to another edition of Lunch VC, where there is no fleece allowed. We give you a no bull look at the industry of venture capital. I'm one of your hosts, Paul Martino, managing partner of Bullpen Capital, alongside with my friend and co-host, the sage of Santa Cruz, Mr. Randy Comisar (laughs) from Kleiner Perkins.
1: Sage. Um, Hey, Paul. It's great to be with you. Uh, Today's interview is going to be all about long range planning. This is something that often gets overlooked in the day-to-day of running a fund. But a single fund is a 10-year commitment. And our guest today, Wei Chu from Reach Capital, is going to talk to us about planning a multi-generational fund.
0: I'm very excited about this, Randy, because it's such an important topic, and we've seen a bit of transition over the years, and I know we've seen it at Kleiner Perkins, Hmm. and getting this generational transition wrong has been the death of a lot of funds remember Merrill Pickard back in the day a name that people taught me about years and years ago died because of this yeah yeah well
1: you know Kleiner is ancient in VC terms it was founded way back in 1972 he's gone through multiple transitions from Eugene Kleiner to John Doerr to Mamoon Hamid and beyond um These are all tricky points for a firm's existence, and groundwork must be laid to ensure a smooth
0: transition. Right, exactly. And we've talked about the difficulties of being a solo GP, but now we're going to talk about real partnership dynamics, LP relationships, institutional knowledge that needs to be solid before you undergo a planned transition. Um, And quite frankly, there's nothing to say of an unplanned transition, which does sometimes happen for a myriad of reasons. And so, with that, we are thrilled today that we're going to have a noble look at this with our friend and co investor in paper, by the way, Wei Yi Chu. Welcome to Lunch VC. Wei Yi, how would you describe the culture of your partnership?
2: It's a great and wonderful question given the tenure together. So, we are uh, our founding partnership has been together for over 10 years. And because we've been working together so long, you know, building that deep trust and respect has been critical to the culture of the partnership. First, the founding partnership never aspired to become venture capitalists. Hmm. We all aligned around the fact that entrepreneurship could be a very powerful tool to solve some of education's biggest problems. And that's what really brought us together. And we bought into the model of venture and seeding early stage companies. But as we think about who is attracted to come work here, Um, we put a huge emphasis on our own educational journeys and how they've impacted our past. And if you actually go to our website, we don't, we don't list our traditional bios, we really focus on what inspired us in our own educational experiences to bring us together. So when I think about long term, I think about the North Star and the type of individuals that are mission aligned around that piece of it.
0: So, so tell us about how you got so deep into this category. You are as thesis driven as anybody I know in the education category. Talk to us about how that happened and a little bit about maybe some of the backgrounds of the founding team.
2: Starting at New School's Venture Fund, that really was the ignition of us learning about ed reform in the U.S. And I'd say, you know, At around 2009, there was a turning point. So Apple at the time was one of the first big tech companies to distribute hardware into the classroom. And that just ignited a whole generation of developers building on the Apple platform in education. So our roots were always around finding the best solutions within education and supporting education entrepreneurs. But where the intersection of software technology and entrepreneurship came Really for us was in 2009 where we created a seed fund within new schools. It was an evergreen fund, meaning the profits would be recycled back into the nonprofit um, to support this ecosystem. In terms of the founding team, I mean, our overall team is a mix of operators, entrepreneurs, engineers, and educators. And I really emphasize that last point. I think we have 20 plus years of public school education experience on the team. Which really has driven our point of view around approaching pedagogy, approaching high quality solutions. So, truly, we have a diverse skill set uh, just from an experience perspective around the team.
1: And how has it changed since Kim Smith was?
2: Yes, that that was a while back. And, you know, we spun out of new schools around 2013 and 14. So we're totally separate now. There's a new leader now, actually. But we haven't been there for quite a while. And I think they have moved away from the for-profit investing model and have stuck with focusing on grants to both schools and technology nonprofit technology solutions. So there is a divide now in terms of how we approach supporting entrepreneurs.
1: What led you to to break out from new schools? What what was the what was the impetus for reach?
2: Yes, it's a great question. As I noted, you know, as in 2009 when we started to see the developer community really build within education we started making very small seed investments with the great mentorship and guidance of many partners on your team. And what became uh, more challenging over time was actually double downing on some of the great success they Mm -hmm. started to see. And so we structure, it was more of a structural question to start our own venture standalone venture fund. So we could double down in some of those early winners.
1: Mm. And when you, when you started the fund, did you, had you already thought about it as a, an institution separate from the founders, that it would be an intergenerational institution? I mean, the, you know, there's a lot of discussion about succession in the venture capital world. And frankly, to me, it's kind of a red herring because ultimately the success of a fund is, a, is around the particular partners around the table at that point in time. And whether or not they decide to invest energy in planning for intergenerational continuity is, is, is an investment that is separate from what I think is the, in the return to the limited partners. I think it's legitimate but different. And so how did you decide that was important?
2: It's such an interesting point because, you know, to be honest, as we were starting Reach One, the intergenerational theme wasn't a top of mind topic. <laughs> we're, you know, busy fundraising, putting the fund model together. What I would say is, you know, we were partner heavy for the size of assets we had under management. Our first fund was $53 million. But as you mentioned, for us, the team in place and the partners that wanted to work with together was what drove and motivated us. So I will say it wasn't too long before we started to think about further support in uh, senior associates, where we then started to think about and be more intentional on what this role was, right? Is this a two-year associate in and out or is it mm. someone um, we can be intentional on, given that this is an apprenticeship and it takes time to build, and we and I am still building that craft. So um, I think we were more intentional than most upfront, but I can't say, you know, this, <laughs> this was a silver bullet formula for us, but it started with the four founding partners and our tenure together. You're talking
1: about the things that you do at REACH to build the next generation so consciously. What are those things? What, what do you do, what do you spend time on that frankly m- may not be focused on the returns in any single fund, but focus on the success of the institution?
2: We are for founding partner, equal partnership in terms of economics. And we're very intentional about that. Currently, we are in the process of developing a more clear pathway plan for our younger partners. So, how our structure is: we have seven investing partners, four our founding equal partners, three our younger partners, and you know, the, we have a generation of venture capitalists coming in that are going to demand, you know, more clear pathways. And I think it's a deep balance. As I mentioned, this is an apprenticeship. This takes time. Yet they are much more impatient, and assert, and, and rightly so, <laughs> to accelerate the success and pathway. So we are building that out from measuring performance. There are probably three key areas that are within this pathway. It's measuring investment process, sourcing, ability to compete and win deals. What are your investment outcomes? The second is around fundraising. So building LP relationships, LP support communications, supporting uh, the fundraise process, and third is more operational, kind of firm operations and fund management. So we wanna be better in our transparency and expectations around these three areas for our younger partners. You know, I think all
1: funds wrestle with how to measure the success and potential of principals and young partners. Given that the gestation period for a investment or a fund can be 10 years or more. And interim valuation upticks can reflect more of the general marketplace than any individual judgment or performance. How do you tease that out? How do you make sense of the potential of any single principal or young Partner before there are actual returns in the fund, before um, they've had the opportunity to go through a couple of fund cycles and a couple of economic cycles to demonstrate whether they're capable of doing this for the longer term.
2: Oh, I, you know, I would hope to learn from you and Paul on this. Um, <laughs> I would. <laughs> I would lead with, right, if we are aligned that success is determined by a continual identification of outliers, right? Um, And if we can align the team toward that goal, these one off outliers that could arguably, was it market forces? Was it luck? Right? It, It has to be all of the above. We bake in ways in which we do try to keep a team dynamic over individual attribution. There are typically two co-sponsors for a deal, for example. Uh, the way our voting is we are not consensus-driven, but we lean in on majority vote in terms of our investment process. And we are right now currently trying to also structure outsized wins. How do you Compensate and align economics to the whole firm, right? Everyone across responsibilities has contributed to that win. Now, we have not nailed the formulas across these areas and they continue to evolve. I will say, and I would love to hear your perspective on approaching the right investment process, it continues to evolve as we add partners, right? What is the weight of votes? Do votes even have weight? are an ongoing conversation for us.
0: I have one specific follow-up question, wei which is the following. I started my fund with two much older co-founders. I was in my mid-30s. Duncan was in his 60s. Rich was in his 70s. How similar in age are the four founding partners of your firm? Because I got to tell you, some of my original LP meetings, people would literally say to me, who are the two old guys you showed up with? And I I remember being confused thinking, are you even legally allowed to say that to me?
2: Yes. No, I, I'm happy to. So I'm 47. I'm fine calling out how old I am. And I, I still feel like I'm I'm still at the start of my performance track record in some ways. I'd say the more senior founding partners are pro- in the range of mid-30s to late-40s. And the younger partners right now are in the range of late-20s to mid-30s. So... I, I mean, I don't know the benchmarks or data points, right? So much is driven by your past experience in the this, in this space or operating. But we do not have big but, disparities on the But the similarity the
0: team. of the ages is important. Yes, yeah. correct. Yeah. It turns out that that really, I think that that actually helps a lot with generational transition. Mm. It makes the stakes higher. But at least you're all kind of on the same team. I had an odd situation where I kind of knew I was going to be around for a while, and my other partners were going to age out quickly, and I had to get young fast. Mm. But I think most firms have a to somewhat higher stakes transition path because you guys are all the same age, right? It's going to kind of all work or not all work.
2: Right, right. And age aside, there is a piece of me and checking in, you know, recently our, our founding partnership has brought in a coach, which has been transformative. I think we're a pretty high EQ team, but it's just gone to a new level of <laughs> EQ, which are important in this business. Um, you know, I hope we are very honest with ourselves. If this job is not sparking the motivation it has at the start, like, let's be honest with ourselves. Let's not be a warm seat on this cap table we really have these open conversations and I know they're easier said than done because no one is ready to leave more immediately right now, but we are trying to get ahead of just how we value, um, the energy that we expect, the energy and output we expect from all the partners. So I think you're right, Paul. I mean, maybe it is a function that we are all fairly close in age.
1: You know, you mentioned coach, and of course, Bill Campbell's an inspiration for Paul and I in doing this podcast series. Can you describe a little bit about how you work with a coach, how you selected a coach, and how you think the coach is changing the way in which you you as partners are addressing the issues in the firm? And you can take your time on that. Those are three big questions.
2: Sure, what i'll I'll say is, you know, we have long been supportive of coaches of our own founders. We have all had individual coaches in different phases and in, in our career as investors. But I will say two years of Zoom interactions with our team was really hard. We have a deeply passionate team. You're coming to an investment meeting online on Zoom with the deepest conviction. Right. And when deals don't get passed on Zoom, literally your screen just shuts off when the meeting's done. There isn't the mm-hmm. reading of the room, there aren't nuanced questions. Right. I, I just rub it. Actually, we were very cognizant of what it was doing to the dynamic of those investment meetings because they are so intense and rightly so. So that actually ignited both the coach as well as some longer term plans for the next fund. We, before we even hit the ground running on that, we wanted to make sure we realign the founding partnership around communication, around trust. You know, there were a few few deals that weren't going through that were rubbing, you know, myself and other partners the wrong way. It's really hard (laughs) to have spent all that time on diligence, right? And not get uh, an investment pass. But <laughs> fundamentally, we do believe in the team dynamic and there is deep respect. So there's just always so much work to put into the relationship.
1: Right, right. And Wei if it wasn't for COVID and, the, <laughs> it, and essentially the Zoom vacation of venture capital, do you think you would have reached this conclusion or reached it this quickly?
2: Well, if you wanna argue if COVID helped drive some tailwinds and the pacing of investment in our space and every other space, <laughs> right? On top mm-hmm. of COVID, pacing was gangbusters. We saw twenty years of just upside. It was a it it was um uh it put pressure on all and to be honest, for reach one, no one looked at education. We could take our time on diligence. <laughs> we could cherry pick and be thesis driven and proactive. And, you know, you saw a bunch of generalists come into our space, some in a more knee jerk manner than others. And um, I think, to be honest, that was good for us. I think some of those players and that noise has um, has filtered out a bit at this moment, but um it was a good test. So whether COVID or not, or was it just pacing of the market? I think um, that was an important growing pain to go through.
1: And and can you tell us how you went about finding and selecting a coach?
2: Oh, that's a good question. So we each have our, our own different peer group of general partners we go to, confide with, support each other on. And I think it's important that you have different peer groups, so you're getting different you know, perspective. I think we did an outreach um, and interviewed actually three or four coaches, and it ultimately comes down to personality and, and fit. I mean, there's so many great coaches and style for our team. But you know, I'm from the East Coast, so you know there's a little bit of a skeptic in me with any type of consulting or coaching in general, and I am fully, you know, <laughs> um, so the bar is much higher for me, um, you know, and I'm an only child, which adds a whole different dynamic. <laughs> um, but I, I think we got some great references from our peers.
1: Paul, let me, let me finish with one last question about the coaching, and then, uh, then you can pick it up with the next question. So how do you go about working with the coach? And what do you think has uh, changed since you started working with the coach in terms of how you approach the operation and management of the firm?
2: Right. Um, I'll be honest. I walked into our first coaching session pretty you know, confident. I've worked with these people 15, 10, 15 years. I know them, right? And um, and just to be clear, we've only had two deep dive uh, workshops that were full day. And now we plan to figure out what that maybe quarterly cadence is. But we went hard immediately on vulnerabilities. And we went hard <laughs> good, on good. Um, personal lived experiences, right? That inform a lot of how we act, <laughs> to be honest. And that and that ability of the coach to unleash that at that vulnerable level was really really transformative, and I have to say, you know, I walk into most investment meetings, I feel pretty open minded. Please. But knowing so much more on on where s- certain angles are coming from, and this is why I, I emphasize we each grew up with very different backgrounds growing up. I have Chinese immigrant. uh, parents who came here for their own education. I have partners who grew up in, you know, North Carolina to um, suburbs of Chicago and bringing each of those experience front and center and really facing some of our fears um, was actually very, very helpful. Underlying any Thank tension you. or challenge in an investment meeting is always an underlying, right, something driving this. It's not actually the investment decision that, right, can unleash someone to feel so emotional. It's so much more.
1: It really was impressed upon me, for decades of working in the industry, and particularly the time I spent at Kleinert Perkins, that the way in which the firm is both diverse. And shares common values. The way in which the firm communicates, the intellectual integrity of that, at the same time, the ability to debate um, and do that effectively. The, these are key to success. I mean, people keep thinking about these things as either consensus-driven, majority-driven. The firm's kind of together like a management team, which I actually do not believe is is, mm-hmm. is the best way to build a venture firm. And then they think about the other side, which is this fractious group of people who are all these independent agents kind of fighting with each other, which I also don't think is the right way to build a firm. And so what I think worked for us at Kleiner was that we didn't use majority votes or consensus. Anybody with conviction could ultimately go ahead at their peril and act, and, and lead an investment with the um, advice, and uh, ad- admonition of the rest of the partners. So there was a potential to veto. Nobody ever exercised that the whole time I was there, though it was talked about. And short of a veto, um, with the feedback of the group, even if it was all negative, a partner with conviction could go ahead with a deal. And, and because the nature of venture capital is looking for the black swan, the exception, you're going to find that Consensus and majority decisions regress to the mean, and great decisions occur through a healthy interaction and process driven by the conviction of a partner, a small group of partners, against the majority. And so building a healthy environment that takes that into account is really difficult, right? It's like, it's, you know, it's basically a, a family with very different points of view um, all coming together to provide input and, and support, but ultimately not necessarily agreeing.
2: Absolutely and and what you say really resonates because we are more majority driven. we see a lot of benefits, but you identified kind of what what also can be the challenges uh, uh, in terms of of you know, thinking toward the mean as well. And and are we taking bold enough bets? And that is a constant question as the more assets you raise, the bigger checks you make, right? Um uh, that's why in terms of fund size, you know, at this point, I'm not about just blowing up the fund for fun's sake, right? We let's get to the opportunity set that we can exceptionally return. Because I I want to make sure that investment process has integrity. Whether you are one person conviction vote versus majority.
0: Uh, Wei, uh, talk to us about you know the number of you have four founding members and how many people you got in the junior ranks. Oh. Talk to us a little bit about how the numbers play out and what does reach look like ten years from now if you're thinking it through.
2: Right, we have a total of seven investment partners four of which are the founding equal partners, three are more younger junior partners. Uh, You know, I alluded to this earlier in terms of what, you know, the future of REACH looks like. Uh, I hope the story of REACH is actually helping to redefine a new generation of venture capitalists that is focused on accelerating access and success of the talent on our team as well as expanding the pipeline of exceptional founders, right? This should not be about how well-connected you are, what school you come from, your background, gender, or race. Right. So that's first and foremost. I am more agnostic on size and scale, whether we are 20-person partnership or stay at seven, because I think the market and investment process will dictate much of that. And as I mentioned to Randy earlier, I want to make sure we are raising the fund size and the opportunity set that we can return in an exceptional way. So whether I'm part of that 25 year, you know, partnership, I think the mechanics will be driven by the market, but the values and mission in which we want to hold should be driven ideally around really accelerating success for all the stakeholders that we serve. And I want us to be a fun place to work. I <laughs> I know that sounds Kirk, but you know, in this world right now, it's it's kind of hard to find just fun, great people to work with. <laughs> I, and we think Amen. we have that. <laughs> you
0: know, and and it's funny because when the later stage PE investors show up to our companies, you realize that their cultures are different than our cultures, mm-hmm. right? The way they behave on the boards are different. And the way that they get talked to by their partners, I guarantee you, is very different way than the way you talk to your partners at reach. Mm -hmm. And it comes out in front of the CEOs. And the CEO will call someone like me or you up and go, wait a minute, they're not thinking about that the same way you early stage investors were.
2: Absolutely. And look, I have deep respect for growth. We need growth for our company. That phase is important. <laughs> it's just right not an area in which I wanna navigate my career because I just I, I like that human that human component uh that feels less transactional in that later stage investing phase.
1: Yeah, my my impression decades of working with great growth investors, both at Kleiner and outside of Kleiner, is that they, they really have developed a different skill set. I mean, they, they don't read the river the same way that we do as early-stage investors. We don't, they don't read the people. They don't read the products. They don't read the marketing competition. They look much more at performance metrics. And while performance metrics are becoming a bigger part of early-stage investing, they're still, um, they're still inferential they're not they're not actual objective fact around you know profit and margins and you know kager and all of that and so if you if you're a growth stage investor you're really great at that and you develop a sense of confidence about being able to read those performance numbers but they're they're almost myopic in terms of understanding what's really going on around the table more deeply around product, technology, competition in those early stage businesses, or people, reading people. I mean, um, if I were to have one complaint um, or criticism of growth investors in early stage investing is that they simply judge the management team and the CEO by their performance rather than by all the other important aspects of entrepreneurship that have become sort of the raison d'etre of what we do as investors
2: that's right that's right and i had an open window call it the last two years of all the growth investors going early (laughs) and 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 seeing how that is playing out too is an interesting dynamic right now
0: i want to go a different direction here a little bit let's talk about lp side of this way for a minute. Four founding partners, three junior partners. How many of you have the luxury of being involved in IR? All of you, one of you, none of you. How, how do you deal with the, the fundraising side of this and the mechanics with the team of size seven? I just am always fascinated because it really is part of the job, whether you like it or not.
2: That's right. The headline motto is always be closing, right? <laughs> For everyone <Amen. when laughs> at all times. So we do not have an IR function at this point. It is in serious consideration that it is maybe about time that we do. Um, But right now, we um, typically have two of the four main founding partners lead the fundraise process as we go into a fund. And we rotate that because we do think there's importance of the four founding partners being very in the nuts and bolts and understanding the fundraising process. And then from there, those two partners assign partners different responsibilities from fund modeling to portfolio construction, data room compilation, the pitch deck, ongoing LP communications, coordination with fund council. That being said, we do emphasize and it is part of the performance of sourcing LPs and building your own relationships to bring to the table. So that is actually an area we look closely to. Uh, one of many variables that we look at in not only building that relationship, but right, the dollars that are brought in um, per partner. And so, um, you know, I think I heard a statistic. I heard the average number of touch points a GP has with an LP before investing is 16 times. And I should probably run that stat against our own data, but it feels accurate, right? And so how do we... (laughs) encourage and make fundraising an integral part of our everyday job in terms of honing existing and honing prospects. And I'd say LP communications is one area that I feel is largely underestimated in terms of time and attention and detail one has to put to build trust among LPs across the partnership. And it's something we're trying to improve, improve upon every day
1: do you do you explicitly talk about culture when you're talking to lps
2: absolutely and I, I i mean i think that's a key differentiator for us and to be honest i think we align with lps that are that care about it um or have a much more longer term view in terms of what a generational fund should look like and i mean lps have been digging in right on they 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 do diligence calls with different combinations of you to see the power dynamics, to see how you communicate with each other. So I feel like over the last three funds, even diligence around partner dynamics, outside of back channeling, right? The mm. amount of back channeling that probably should happen—they're—they're they're doing their job, um, but it is a big core of the diligence process for them in our experience, especially given the number of partners we have. Right? Yeah.
0: And does one of your four partners, and I I just don't know this, I'm curious, do one of your four partners have more of what I'd call a CEO-type role inside the firm? HR ends up on their desk. um, Some of the corporate and finance ends up on their desk. uh, Because, look, as you learn, partnerships are hard to run in general. Being a CEO is a really different job. But having some CEO-like type responsibility among one of the partners, I found works in some firms. How do you guys address that?
2: No, I think you're right. So um, the way we have allocated across the four partners, uh, Jennifer Carolyn, one of our founding partners, definitely holds culture hiring, professional development, the apprenticeship piece, dearly to her heart, and she drives much of that work. Chantel has taken much of the early operational fund management, kind of the COO, very, very detailed work. Esteban drives a lot of our um, fund uh, modeling and forecasting, and I have taken on much of the portfolio support, the community supports, the um, individual, the kind of the platform we're building out to support founders. So each of us has taken a core of the internal work and and specialized in in that area. So there is not. I would say, one CEO that takes over all of operations. We have recently brought in a CFO, which has hugely helped. uh, And down the road, IR and operations uh, continues to be an area where we hope to get further support on. And we each manage a different set of individuals on the team.
1: Oh, you do? Oh, that's interesting. Mm -hmm. Does that mean that you're seen as each having kind of your, I don't know, your little enclave i mean or do people how do how does that work politically inside the organization oh, not-
2: well hopefully not um so i oversee one of our younger <laughs> um partners my partner Chantel oversees another one um and that is really you know what i do is i do weekly one-on-ones that are more transactional and we do a monthly pulse check so it cannot be anything to do with day-to-day interaction and just what is working and what is not working and we all come together as a partnership to share, you know, this feedback. But when it comes this is separate from investment process. And actually, Randy, to your point, an LP recently asked, if you looked at the pattern of your votes, do you see certain patterns mm. and pairings? And it was a great question and a great exercise. And I love that the end outcome was it was completely erratic. <laughs> are voting. There were no oh, pairs. There was, and that was really important that there is trust among this team to push back, to say no. I mean, no team is perfect, but we are very working very hard to not layer politics or, or personal preferences into our investment process.
1: And, and do you plan to, sh- to sort of hand off, to, to exchange your mentees at some point so that Chantelle's handling the person that you're currently mentoring, and you mentor the person they're currently handling, so that that, they they get the benefit of that?
2: So there's two points to that. So actually, um, in our investment process, there are two co-sponsors, so everyone has worked with each other in different ways, and that is driven by Uh whether capacity, expertise. So we are actually integral and working with each other but we have actually um switched managers whether it was um it's more capacity you know someone's taking on something else Mm. but um we haven't done i mean we don't have that big of a team but the investment process Mm. has us all rotating paul knows james uh kim and i have worked together on paper Um, i work with a lot of different partners on all our different investments so that adds to just really work, a working dynamic that is diverse and mixed.
0: I just want to say the intentionality of your answers is surprising to me, not because of you personally. I mean, I know how much you think about this. It really stands in contrast to a lot of our other guests, though, where you almost got the sense it was seat of the pants. It was a solo GP. You guys have really, really thought about this in advance. And I don't know that I have a question, just more an observation that that you are definitely an outlier in the way you run your fund just based on the answers you've given us
2: thank you thank you i feel like I, I i hope i'm learning from um great investors like both yourselves who randy i've been following your amazing career and paul i was I've been fortunate enough to be on a board with you to learn from your sound approach so <laughs> thank you
1: well let me ask a little bit about thesis here because education is something we wrestled with at kp all the mm-hmm. time um you know there was a there was a very deep interest particularly amongst john and Brooke. That's why they founded new schools because they did not it wasn't clear to them that venture investing was the best vehicle at that time in the early 2000s to innovate in education. And so they, they, they end up with this fund that was, you know, kind of a mixed fund, partly philanthropic, a little bit of, of mm-hmm. private investing on the side. The thesis,, it, you know, it, it, on the one hand, it can be seen as con, kind of constraining and subject to a lot of non-market pressures that you'd see in other aspects of investing. And on the other hand, we've seen a broadening of that over the last decade with some big standout successes. So how do you think about that thesis going forward? How rich is that vein for investing in your mind? And what do you see around the horizon?
2: I would agree with you to be honest when we launched reach one um, it wasn't out of audacity the size of the fund, but it was really about let's look at the k-12 right higher ed uh at tech market let's size it up appropriately and let's make some amazing returns right and maybe at that time you could return an exceptional fund with a range of call it 5 to 10x returns right not it, it wasn't as binary as traditional venture And so as we have evolved and built our investment thesis beyond education and the future of work, um, again, we've stayed disciplined and rigorous in the size fund, but we have always remained optimistic about the future of this space. And actually, education is truly deeply resilient. I think, you know, if I can note, our last two or three unicorns came out of 2009 recession. Right. And and so I think the power, powerful lever for upward social mobility, uh, whether it's offered in more traditional academic environments or in the workplace, is definitely where the future is. And you layer on COVID where our behaviors to working and learning have completely shifted. And so we, we still see um, some very enduring themes and thesis areas around personalized learning, digital content, tutoring, accessibility, uh, embedded learning, empowered economy—all these kind of buzzwords that we have labeled across our thesis areas—to endure across each of our funds, um, and so I and I think the the new capital that has come in was was actually quite validating, to be honest. And as we look at the follow on rounds of our success stories. You know, there are amazing generalists like Paul and Kleiner that have come in. I, I think there's a new age for education, ed tech more generally. Uh, we remain optimistic, but I, I do wanna say we also want to size that right for us, not for anyone else. And, and um, our portfolio is actually 50% consumer and 50% B2B. So that intentional portfolio mm. construction of go to market approaches has really worked in our favor.
1: Do you have any examples of edge cases where you've had to make the call that it really wasn't an education or future of work investment or or surprising investments where you would have thought that maybe it didn't quite fit, but you're, after doing your due diligence, you came to the conclusion that it did fit your thesis?
2: I think um, to maybe reframe the question, we often ask and I'll use this example. This came up recently, not that from an investment perspective, but just for an investment. Would we invest in a pure play marketplace that matches individuals to jobs? Like a Fiverr, for example. Would we have made that investment? We were not even doing future work at the time. And there is um, a learning component that we require in terms of the experience. Like, Would we just do a pure transactional? There are two questions around that. And thinking about unintended consequences, right? It, has, it, it's, it gave access to a whole labor force, but now it's raced to the bottom on pricing, and is that what you want to optimize for? So I'm not going to answer your question directly, but I think <laughs> trying to be very intentional on the unintended consequences mm-hmm. of what we invest in mm. and asking ourselves what... Is there an uh, opportunity for social or economic mobility, which you would say yes initially, right? To find designers and developers from across the world at different levels, right? You are democratizing this, but from a pricing perspective, Mm it did. uh, You know, well, maybe it's a good outcome for some, but that is something we consider. There are a lot of philosophical questions. I say we ask more of. Given education in the U.S. and most of our companies are selling into districts that are not just coastal cities, let's be clear, right? We are selling into rural Alabama and Arkansas. And so um, this is to your point, Randy, on having an ability to debate and discuss, whether across party lines or across perspectives, is exceptionally important on our team. Um, we cannot lean on one side or other, another that is not in service of all the students we want to serve. So um, those are also areas that of of deeper debate on our team. And even culturally, as we more grow global and as you know I, I am a Chinese American born, the philosophy of t- test assessment, test prep, you know, what are we optimizing for? Yet when you are a country of a billion and need to educate that many, hmm. you know, test assessment in India and China become a deep reality. So these are all nuanced conversations that have been kind of some of the hardest for us in, in asking whether we invest or not.
1: I am I, so heartened by that. You know, there's, I have found very few venture capitalists who ask the question about unintended consequences. Mm. and you know the idea that something is not intended doesn't mean it's also not foreseeable, right? right. I mean you know, if you look at something like Facebook, for instance, mm-hmm. if you've got a mm-hmm. business model where the customer is the product, well, you're going to see the abuse that you see in mm. that sort of business model. And so that may have not been intended. I don't think you know, I don't think Zuckerberg and Sandberg or, or, or were evil people, but right. they developed around a business model that lent themselves to those unintended consequences. They were foreseeable. And so the fact that you're willing to do that and do that early is so impressive. I can't, I can't tell you how important it is. I, 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 I spend a lot of time driving that particular question home with the various groups that I work with, including my company, my CEOs, because right. they, they're developing businesses where they have good intentions but right. very foreseeable bad consequences if they don't guard against them.
2: Right. And it's hard. It's hard. <laughs> it's not We do not have yeah. the answers yeah. here. But you have to leave time yeah. and room and space to consider them.
0: Totally. You know, one of the things I want to mention too is, you know, when I'm going to do my next edtech deal, and I think I will, I remember the first one I really did was with you, I know I'm going to call you. <laughs> and when I know I'm going to do my next... Latin American deal I'm going to call my friends at Kazakh that we did a draft EA with and we did a heyday Pataco with and and when you're a generalist firm like bullpen I've definitely learned this and we use this phrase internally I want a tour guide right I want a professional who knows the geography of where the company is and I want someone who knows the category if we don't because I like to be a generalist but man it's a lot better mm-hmm. when you have a domain expert as your ringer sitting right next to you on the board
2: well I appreciate that I I I mean, there are limits to being so specialized, but um, this is a space we are so deeply passionate about. So hopefully we can differentiate and support the work of our co-investors as well and, and, and just how you articulate it.
0: Wonderful. Well, look, Way, I really appreciate the time today. Such a delicate topic and your candor was exceptional. So on behalf of me and Randy Komisar, I really do want to thank you for your time today.
2: Well, thank you, it was such an honor. I I feel like I could use more time learning from both of you. Um, So thank you for having me.
1: Same here, thank you.
0: Thanks for listening. Lunch Bell VC was created by Randy Comisar and me, Paul Martino. It was produced by the great team at Edit Audio. If you wanna follow more of our guest's journey, Check out the show notes. And if you like what you've heard, make sure to give us a review and tell your budding VC friends to listen to us. They might actually learn something. Again, I'm Paul Martino, and on behalf of Randy Komisar, see you next time.